You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. It's always so cool in the 11, uh, 1130 service. Everybody's had their coffee, and there's just lots of great energy. Good to see everyone here. Um, in the 930 service, I did something that I've never done before. Oh, it's, it's sad. I forgot to promote one of my classes. I know. I had to do, t- I mean, I never forget to promote my classes, but I did. I think as a middle school kid threw me off. I think John, yeah. yeah. Anyhow, so I have a class that starts up on Tuesday. And so many of you come to this class. And so this semester, this time around, we are doing uh, Tuesday night, starting at 7 o'clock, in person and on Zoom. We're doing a series called The Seven Deadly Sins. Oh, and it will sound strange to say it'll be fun, but it will be fun. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know seven ways to sin, I will teach you uh, many different ways. Yes. No, it, it, it'll, be, it'll be really good. And so that's starting on, uh, on, on Tuesday night. So uh, many of you I know come out. You don't have to sign up. Just, just show up. We meet in the Burke Room at uh, 7 o'clock. Or, again, if you are interested, if you go on our, onto our website, there'll be a Zoom link there if you, uh, if you can't make it in person. Okay. There. I've got my closet. Uh, we are actually carrying on in a series. Now, do you remember way back a long time ago, we were in a series in a book in the New Testament. What was the book? Acts. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's been a while, but we are going to carry on. Just as a recap, Acts is a book in the Bible that tells the story of the difference that a person and an event makes in all of ministry. The person is Jesus Christ. The event is his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the book of Acts takes place immediately after this event. And more precisely, the book of Acts is a story of the church, of the early church. And it's a story of what happens when the Spirit of God falls upon those who put their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus Christ. And one of the themes that shows up again and again in the book of Acts is that you and I are called to be witnesses to what Jesus has done. And we believe as Sam was sharing, that, that Jesus is still in the business of changing lives and that he can change hearts, he can change um, entire communities. He can transform deepest, darkest Coquitlam. Yes, it can. And, and so today, today's passage uh, is actually a really key passage in the overall story in the book of Acts. Um, it's, in fact, it's a key passage in the overall story of the Bible. Um, back in Acts chapter 1, we come across Jesus saying these words. He says, and you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in our passage today, we see a critical shift from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it all surrounds this person, a fellow named Cornelius. And so we're going to look at his story today. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. 
Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew rack in front of you. If you don't want to do that, just Google on your smartphones Acts 10, and it'll show up. Now, it's a long passage. You can remain seated because we're going to look at the, the whole chapter. But um, follow along in the story. It's, it's, it's quite a remarkable story. So let's dive in. Um, Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at around three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto his roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Well, this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, well, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, Well, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to come, uh, to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So the next day, Peter starts out, heads out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together all of his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. And Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I'm only a man myself. And while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why that you sent for me? And then Cornelius explains his own experience. So let's jump down to verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. He goes, well, I now realize that how, how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation 
from every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all? You know what happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power? How he went about doing good and healing and all those who under his power of the devil? Uh, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witness whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, Peter was, while Peter was still speaking these things, these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all those who heard the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Wow, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. Jesus, this is your word. You're not a philosophy, you're not a worldview, but you are personal and you are present with us today. So speak to us. We pray that you would point out places of intersection between your word and our lives. So give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to respond to what you say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a long passage, but a lot goes on in this passage. It's a very important passage. And so what I want to do is just briefly just kind of walk through it a little bit, and we'll do it by looking at, at this story as a story of five acts or five scenes. The first scene we come across is a scene that takes place in Caesarea, and this is Cornelius' vision. Now, Caesarea, this is, the this is the name of the town where it takes place. It's important because Caesarea is a Gentile town in a Jewish land. Um, it was located on the coastline of Palestine, uh, it was a city that was built, and it was quite, quite an amazing city. It was built by Herod the Great. Uh, it was the site of his palace. And it was, also the, it was also Rome's provincial headquarters. And not surprisingly, this is where, you know, the military was kept. This is where um, uh, army garrisons were stationed. And then we come across this guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius, it turns out, was a centurion probably a former slave, um, but he was a centurion, so he oversaw how many people? 100, yeah, centurion, century, right? Um, so he's in charge of 100 people. Uh, he's part of the Italian regiment that happened to be stationed in Judea. So he's not super high-ranking. He's probably like the equivalent of a captain in the army today. What do we know about Cornelius as a person? Well, he, apparently he's a pretty good guy. He's a pretty, pretty devout guy. He was devout, God-fearing. Um, he, was, he was like a number of people in the first century. There's a number of people who were, who were um, they weren't Jewish. 
Um, they probably come out of a polytheistic background. But I saw something about the Jewish monotheism and their ethical standards that drew him. And so he, he was what is, was often called a, um, a God-fearer. So he aligned his life with Yahweh. He aligned his life worshiping God. But because he's Gentile, he was still separate. He is still separate from the Jews. Um, because Jews and Gentiles typically remain separate from each other. Now, why? Why did they remain separate from each other? Well, <laughs> it's a good question because the Old Testament doesn't really support this separation. In the Old Testament, we read a story about a guy named Abraham and this promise that's given to Abraham, and the promise is very clear. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, your offspring. I'm going to make this great nation, Israel, but through this nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the promise, and that promise runs right through the Bible. So I'll make you into a great nation, and through this nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The problem is, and you read this in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament you realize that Israel, rather than seeing them being chosen by God as a missional thing to reach the world, they saw themselves as having a special status in God's eyes. They saw it as a badge of honor. And rather than saying, okay, we, God has called us to reach you, they said, no, God has called us and not you. And so they promote a, um, a separation between themselves and anyone on the outside. Now, they lived, for the Jews, they lived out the separation very carefully. And one of the uh, ramifications of this is that you very seldom see a Jew staying or visiting a Gentile in their home, and certainly you would not have a Gentile entering a Jewish home. Like, you, you, the, the, the two would not mix. Now, all this plays in the background of what's about to happen. Cornelius is living in Caesarea, and one day while he's praying, the unexpected happens. God shows up, which always makes me chuckle. It's like, when we prayed, and we're surprised when God shows up, that's kind of a funny thing, but often when I'm praying, it's like, hey, God actually showed up, but it shouldn't be a surprise, but it often is. The angel speaks to Cornelius, and he calls him by name. And I love that little detail, that God knows us by name. God does not love in generalities. God does not love in just general categories. God loves you, and he knows your name. He knows you in the details of your life. Do you believe that? Right? So he says, Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is understandably a little freaked out, uh, an angel speaking to him. Um, but he gets instructions uh, to, to go and fetch this person, Peter, from a town called Joppa. Now, Joppa was about 30 miles away, which is what? About 50 kilometers, depending on the exchange rate. Um, that's so lame. Uh, <laughs> such a lame joke. Such a dad joke, as my kids would say. Uh, but that leads us to the second, second vision. And the second vision is, is, is Peter's vision. Down in Joppa, we find our man Peter, one of the leaders of the early church. And what is Peter doing? Well, he's also praying. Um, he's praying on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. Now, imagine the roof, not as 
this way, but as a flat roof. Um, and he's up there because it's cool and it's breezy and it's quiet. And he's praying. But he's distracted because he's hungry. And I don't know about you, but I love those little details. Because if Peter's distracted, then I feel okay because I'm always distracted when I'm, when I'm praying. Anybody else here distracted when they're praying? Yeah. And then I love Why is he distracted? He's hungry. And so he's praying, but he's starting thinking about lunch and, you know, all sorts of things always happen to me whenever I'm, I'm, I'm praying. Um, yeah, he's hungry. But and then something really interesting happened. He falls into a trance. And he has this really strange vision. Not surprisingly, it has something to do with food. Remember, he's hungry, right? Um, and, and so he sees these animals that could become food. Now, if you're a vegan here, don't get all freaked out or anything. This is, this is pointing to a different, uh, a different message. Um, but he is seeing these animals. And, and these animals, we're not quite sure, but they're on this sheet that is descended from heaven and brought back up to heaven, and it happens three times. And on the sheet, you have animals that, according to Jewish dietary law, included clean animals that they were allowed to eat and unclean animals that they were not allowed to eat. But they're all together. And then a voice comes. A voice. Peter hears his heavenly voice, and the voice says this. Get up, kill, and eat. Now, for a Jewish person, this, this would have been astonishing. And Peter's response is typical Peter. He responds very strongly. What does he say? He says, no way, Lord. Now, you see the irony there, right? No way, Lord of my life. You're telling me what to do. I'm saying, no, Lord. No, which is it, Peter? Is he Lord or is he not Lord? But this is typical Peter, and he's done this before. We've seen this before. Because Jesus once said to him, you know, that the Son of Man is going to have to suffer and die. And what does Peter say? No way, Lord. (laughs) Basically the same thing. In both cases, the Lord ends up prevailing. Uh, though it takes Peter a while to get it. Uh, but Peter says to him, he, he lays out his record. He says, no way, Lord. I have never in my life eaten anything that's unclean. And listen to the response in the vision. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Okay. Let's linger here for a second, just for a second. Because these words have huge implications. One, (laughs) this whole scene reminds Peter again, well, it begs the question, Peter, who is Lord of your life? If I'm Lord, are you going to listen to me? Which is a challenge for me because sometimes I'll pray and I'll say, Jesus, you are Lord, but then I'll pick and choose what I want to listen to him about. You know what I mean? And I like this, but I'm not so keen about this. But honestly, if, if, if Jesus is Lord, if he is what I say he is, then I really do need to listen to him in all that he says. The other thing that comes out of this is that this is going to have huge implications because there's a changing of dietary laws, yes, but there's also going to be a huge change in terms of how, how we see people. And what used to be separated may not be separated anymore. But the other thing I was thinking about is I was thinking about these words. 
Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now listen carefully. Now for Peter, this is going to move swiftly from food to people. But it applies to you and to me. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, all your sins, all the things that you've done that you wish you hadn't done, all the things that you didn't do that you wish you had done, all the things that bring you shame, all the things that cause you guilt, all those things have been dealt with once and for all on the cross when Jesus died the death that we should have died, paid the debt that we could never pay. Now, this is key, because what it means is that by grace, through faith, you are an adopted daughter or son of the Most High. You are deeply, deeply loved by the one who matters. You got that? So when somebody says to you, you're an idiot, or when, some, or when, when actually, you don't need to... You don't actually need to hear people say that because you say it to yourself. We say it to ourselves, don't we? When we mess up and you're like, oh. And I call myself a Christian and that's what I think and that's what I do and that's what I say. And when you're starting to beat yourself up, you remember these words where God says, do not call unclean that which God has made clean. You are an adopted, loved daughter and son of the Most High. So whenever you hear that self-talk, on oh, you, you know you, you know what I'm talking about. Remember these words: Do not call anything unclean that God has made clean. So back to the story. Peter's still wondering about this vision, and lo and behold, people show up at his house, and the Holy Spirit has to prompt them, Peter. Come on, go downstairs. These are, there's some people here that I have sent to you, so go with them, right? So Peter goes downstairs, introduces himself. Uh, they explain their mission, and, and, and Peter says, okay, I'll go with you. But before we go, because it's late, why don't you guys stay overnight, and we'll leave in the morning. Now, part of us is like, okay, that makes sense, but think about it. This is a Jewish home, and he's inviting Gentiles to stay overnight. Already, things are beginning to change. So let's see what happens next. Scene three. Peter and Cornelius, they begin to compare notes. The next day, the troop sets out on a 30-mile trip to Caesarea. They meet up with Cornelius. Cornelius is excited. He gets his family, gets his friends. They all gather together. They're excited. And then Cornelius sees Peter. And, uh, you know, the old polytheist inside of him or whatever, I don't know, he sees Peter who is the, you know, the, the uh, object of the vision that the angel had given him. So what does Cornelius do? He falls down and he worships Peter. And Peter basically says, dude, don't, 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 don't do that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a god, I'm just a man, right? So stand up. And then, and then Peter says something. He's, he's speaking to the crowd. And right away, what does he do? He names the elephant in the room. He says, let's just be honest. I'm Jewish. You're Gentile. According to our law, I should not be in this place with you guys. I'm just being honest. 
there's a separation between you and me. You're unclean, I'm clean. You know, I'm part of God's chosen people. I should not be here. But then he says these words, and these are my most favorite words in the Bible. Two words. But God. Because I shouldn't be here. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. God has shown me there's no second-class citizens in his world. And so Peter, in one fell swoop, he pushes back against two things that we tend to do. One is we make people idols, or two, we categorize people so that we can separate ourselves from them. Peter says we can't do that anymore. And Peter explains to everyone present the vision that God had given him. And I love Cornelius and his friends. They're like, we're so glad you're here. God told us you're going to come. And so now we want to hear everything that the Lord has commanded you to say to us. So come on, Peter, tell us. And Peter's like, all right, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. And, and Peter, you, you have to realize his world is being transformed. But he says to him, he says, you know what? I'm learning something. God does not show favoritism. But he accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And so now, Jews and Gentiles, we're on the same playing field. That the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And then Peter's like, well, how is this possible? Well, this was the promise given to Abraham in the first place. That all the nations of the world would be blessed. So this is being played out in this passage. And then Peter, I love what he does he gets personal. And there's some geeky, fun, historical things here because what Peter does, he says, he says to them, remember, they're all Gentile. They're all Roman. He says, you guys know, you guys know. You guys know about this Jesus, right? You know what happened to him, how he was, how he was crucified and how he died. You know the stories about he was resurrected. Now he's saying this as if they know about it which tells us that the truth of Jesus and what had happened to him had spread far and wide very early on. He says, you guys know all this. You've heard the story. And then I love Peter. He's like, well, let me tell you. I was there. I was there. I saw him resurrected. And not only did I see him resurrected, we hung out afterwards. We ate together. We had a so he's he's giving testimonies, he's bearing witness to what had happened. And 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 then he says something. He says, This is huge, because this is a person and an event that took place in history. This is real. And so the implications for this is huge, because what it means is that what you and I do in our life matters. Right? How we live our life matters. And some of you think, well, who cares what how what I do, what I say, what I it matters. It matters because at the end of the day, at the end of the age, we're going to have to give an account for how we lived our lives. So the choices we make in this lifetime of ours really matter. And then he lays out, he says, this Jesus, he is, he is, the, he is going to judge the living and the dead. He's going, to, he's going to judge us. But then he says this, he goes, but because of the cross of Christ, there is forgiveness and freedom. He lays out the whole gospel, and everybody's taken this in, which leads us to the final scene. And in the final scene, in the final scene, something amazing happens. 
And it's interesting because it's while Peter is speaking. It's not like Peter said, and now I'm done my speech, amen, come Holy Spirit, fall upon. No, no, he's, he's talking. And in the middle of talking, something incredible happens. The Holy Spirit, which is God's empowering presence, comes upon all those who are listening to the message. And the Jews there, they're like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. What's going on here? The Holy Spirit is falling upon Gentiles? The promise of God is now being placed upon these Gentiles? And I love Peter's response. He's so practical. He basically says, wow, they've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. <laughs> like That's what he says. What we experienced back in Jerusalem, these guys are now experiencing. And is that not what Jesus promised? That you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So what does this say to us today? Like, what are the implications of this passage? Well, <laughs> there's huge implications. One, all the things that separate us, all the things that we use to divide ourselves, to categorize ourselves, to write people off, to accept people, all the things, all the divisions, whether it be through race, through culture, through socioeconomics, through whatever, all the things that we do to divide have been removed once and for all because of the cross. And one of the themes that comes up over and over again is that we are one people of God. We are all reborn by the Holy Spirit. We are all reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. We're all adopted sons and daughters by grace through faith in Jesus. You know, this is really, this, this reality that there's no divisions between people, that, that, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, this has huge implications throughout history. You know, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that if we go to court, that uh, every person is seen as having din dignity and value. Every person has freedoms. Every person has rights. And we take this language of rights and human rights and human freedoms as self-evident. It's not self-evident, contrary to Thomas Jefferson. It's actually rooted in a Christian worldview. It's rooted in the fact that in Christ, all the divisions, all the things that divide us of being eradicated. And you have to realize how this would have sounded in the first century and even in the second century. One of the questions I always ask is, why did the early church grow? And why the early church grew is because it offered this amazing picture of what it means to be human, what it means to be in society. Because if you're living in the Greco-Roman world, there's a lot of division. How many of you have heard of the guy Socrates? The philosopher, yeah, in the 4th century B.C. Now, Socrates has this famous line called, know thyself, right? And we often think, okay, so what does Socrates mean by that? Know yourself. Well, it means look deep inside yourself and find out who you are. That's not what he meant. When Socrates says know yourself, he says know your position in society, where you are on the hierarchy in society, and stay there. And so if we're living in the first century or the second century, and this was, you know, a microcosm of society, one-third of you would be slaves. And as a slave, you were property. You had no rights. You had no freedoms. You had nothing. You weren't even a human being. You were property. 
And if you're a woman, you know what Aristotle called women? He called them deformed males. How he ever got a girlfriend, I don't know. Um, but women in the Greco-Roman world were subhuman. Slaves were not human. Women were subhuman. Children were nothing. Especially baby girls. A baby girl, you have, you were it was legal for you to take a baby girl and to cast her away and expose her to die. You couldn't do that with a baby boy unless he was deformed, and then it was okay to do so legally. So here you have a society that's highly structured, all sorts of divisions. You've got one-third of the population who aren't even human because you're slaves. You have women who are seen as deformed males, and you have children with no rights, all this, and then you get this radical picture. And imagine, imagine being a slave. You're nothing. You are, you are a thing. And yet you enter into the society where you hear about this person, Jesus. And next thing you know, you're sharing bread, you're sharing wine, and someone looks at you and calls you by name and says, brother, sister, you are an adopted daughter, adopted son. You, you matter. Can you imagine what that would do? And that's why the early church grew the way it did. It grew right across the board because it offered this picture of humanity that was so rich. And, and that, that, uh, that picture has spread throughout the world. And I love the response. What is the response? As soon as Peter sees this, he goes, well, I don't think there's any reason for these guys not to be baptized. They could be baptized. So right away, they're baptized. And be, to be baptized means you're brought into the whole Jesus story. Your identity and your mission has changed. And next week, we'll be having baptisms here. We're still part of this story. This passage teaches us that the church is to be a witness to the ends of the earth. It's a faith for all nations, all people, all tongues, all tribes. And you know what? We see this. We've seen this throughout church history. We've seen how Christianity has spread far and wide. What is the largest Christian nation in the world? What's the, what's the nation with the, lar the largest amount of Christians in the world? What's that? China. China. Yeah, absolutely. China. China's probably got 80 to 100 million Christians. What's the uh, largest Christian continent in the world? East Asia? It's actually Africa. Africa. Africa in 1910 had 10 million Christians. At the end of the 20th century, it had 360 million. That transformation is considered one of the greatest transformations sociologically in all of human history. So this vision that we see in Acts 10 is being carried out in history, and we're seeing the effects of it. Where every corner of the world, from every background, people are encountering Jesus and are being transformed. And we're all tied together by one thing, by a person and an event, Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. Thanks for listening to this message. 
If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.